Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We were delighted to be joined in this episode by Luce D'Souza, Deputy Director and Research Fellow at the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Lisbon. He spoke to Robert Barrington on a number of interesting topics. Luis describes Portugal's experience of building anti-corruption institutions, looking at the political factors which have shaped their design and management over time. He also talks about his own experience in founding Transparency International Portugal and how the organisation has developed. He and Robert then tackle the topic of anti-corruption agencies and the often polarised debate on whether anti-corruption agencies can be an effective mechanism for combating corruption. Luis takes a long view on how this debate has evolved, the conditions needed for anti-corruption agencies to be successful, and provides a nuanced perspective on what role they can offer for reformers. We hope you enjoy the episode and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of Kickback. My name is Robert Barrington. I'm a professor at the University of Sussex's Centre for the Study of Corruption, and I'm a guest host of Kickback for this episode. And with me as the guest is Louis D'Souza, uh, well known to many of our listeners for his work on anti-corruption agencies, but also so much more as we will explore in this episode. Louis, can I kick off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your career? Um, my name is Louis D'Souza. I'm a uh... Deputy Director at the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Lisbon, also research fellow. I'm a political scientist by training, did my PhD at the European University Institute, a thesis on corruption control, mostly focusing on integrity in politics. So I've been doing research on both perceptions and anti-corruption policies for the past 20 years. <laughs> And Luis, when I um, look back over the previous Kickback podcast, there's very little reference to Portugal, um, maybe a little bit about Angola and kleptocracy, but Portugal proper, not very much. So, you know, that might lead one to conclude that because there's nothing to say about corruption in Portugal, uh, but I suspect that isn't the case. And I wonder if you could give us your um, your insights into the uh, the landscape of corruption and anti-corruption activity in Portugal. Well, I think there's a lot to say, actually. I think it's a very interesting case that often stays below the radar. Portugal, if we look at um, uh, at the, the transition period, uh, the movement of the armed forces who did the revolution back in 1974, they had a program for, the, um, for Portugal, for the, um, the newborn regime, and there were some priorities. One of those priorities was uh, inscribed in that very short program that the movement of the armed forces negotiated afterwards with uh, the political parties. Uh, it, it was inscribed the fight against corruption and fraud. Um, so uh, from day one, uh, I think it's on the uh, DNA of the Portuguese democracy to do something about um, this uh, phenomenon, both in administrative terms, but also at the political level. And more recently, obviously, also at the market level. We were probably one of the first countries to uh, put in place um, an anti-corruption agency back in the early 80s. These uh, series of reforms, which also included the introduction of uh, asset declarations, 
it was in a very um, it, it was in a period of hardship basically we we had two um, austerity programs from the IMF and we had to get our act together basically <laughs> so we, um, we we introduced a series of reforms in the public administration and one of the measures was the creation of high authority against corruption basically an anti-corruption agency then the statutes were reviewed in 1986 they broadened the scope of this agency they gave it a few uh, additional resources uh, and when it started doing its work, mostly looking uh, at some uh, misconduct by, by politicians, they were shut down by parliamentary vote in 1992. So I think that short story of that agency uh, explains a lot of what goes on in other countries regarding um, new specialized bodies, um, new anti-corruption bodies. Now, in terms of uh, perceptions, the country is also very interesting because uh, systematically there's a high perception of the incidence of corruption in the country. We're talking about uh, sociotropic perceptions. You know, people say, people believe there's a lot of corruption going on. We're talking about 96, 97% of the people. So that's a lot. But when we look at egocentric perceptions at um, how corruption affects people's lives and uh, or um, self-reported experiences of corruption, which are often, often uh, it, it's a more specific item uh, when we do surveys because uh, we ask uh, whether you've been asked a bribe by a public official. So a bribe, it's, it's in a way narrower than, 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 than the concept of corruption. But still, when we look at self-reported uh, corruption, we're talking about 2-3%. I mean, really marginal. At the same time, when, he, when we ask people about um, gradients of tolerance, the Portuguese are quite intolerant towards corruption. So it, it, it really is an interesting case because, you know, on one hand, they think there's a lot. On the other hand, they think, uh, they say, I have not experienced it, and uh, not only I have not experienced it, I actually condemn it, and, and I condemn vehemently because uh, the percentage of, of intolerance is it's quite high, similar to uh, Nordic countries. So that makes this case a bit interesting and complex in terms of uh, perceptions. In terms of um, the fight against corruption, it's also interesting because we have, uh, I mean, we have adopted an array of legislative measures. I can tell that for the, the, for the whole period, since 1974 up to now, we have had about 141 proposals. Uh, that's, a, I mean, that's quite a lot. And, 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 and out of these, 49 have, have, have been... Um, transformed into, into bills. So they, the, the, the legislative production, it's quite high, especially high when it comes to uh, the regulation of um, ethics in politics. So party financing laws came late. Uh, first regime came, uh, dates back to 1993, which means that for 20 years, 
from 74 up to 93 for almost 20 years, uh, the, the financing of political parties and electoral campaigns was uh, pretty much informal, undeclared. Um, and, and so that, in a way, enabled parties to create bad habits. <laughs> After that, we had several, uh, several reforms of this law, and uh, the same with the law on incompatibilities or the law on asset declarations. So the, the tendency was to, um, to have this proliferation of, of legislative measures. And in some cases, you know, we, we were moving from one reform to the other without knowing exactly what went wrong with the previous uh, reform. There were no, no monitoring or evaluation of the impact of these reforms. And so it was pretty much dependent on the, on the mood of the legislature, on, on reaction to scandals, on reaction to pressure from international uh, review mechanisms like Greco. So the, um, the tendency was to, to, to um, uh, con continuously to change the law and to address corruption uh, by uh, legislative means. Um, I mean, there were a few entities created um, that, that specialize on, on political ethics or, or, or corruption. We had the new body uh, created to monitor campaign and, and party financing. Um, again, the model is very unusual. Uh, often uh, these competences are delegated on national election commissions or on um, uh, national audit bodies because there's public, funded, uh, public funding involved. But in the Portuguese case, they um, uh, we created uh, um, an entity, um, an, an administrative entity, as part of the constitutional court, and that's quite unusual and has its problems also. Many of these new entities that were created, they they, they seriously lack resources, and that reflects also in the um, in the results they get and, and the, the work they make uh, visible. Um, this entity in particular uh, has been unable to audit some of the accounts. And, and so uh, many of these uh, accounts and, and some of, this, uh, some of the, um, some of the uh, violations that were found during the, the auditings, uh, they, they reached the statutes of limitation. So that's... Um, uh, you know, that, I think that's a clear indication that there's lack of capacity uh, of, of these specialized bodies. Um, there was also a, a, a new uh, Corruption Prevention Council created, which has now been extinguished because a new mechanism against corruption uh, working under uh, the uh, direct uh, uh, control of the government has been created. We also have a, a, an ethics committee in Parliament, which has changed designation and, and competences over time. But now it's a permanent uh, commission, but with very little powers. So that's, I mean, in, in, in institutional terms, problem has been uh, creating institutions with 
little capacity, fewer resources, uh, not enough specialization. That is, I think it's the, the trend we've witnessed uh, in, the last, uh, in the last decades in Portugal. But I think it's something also common to many other countries. Yeah, and you know, people sometimes slightly cynically say that when you've got a pattern like that, the institutions have been set up deliberately to fail. Um, you know, you set it up to look good, maybe to get uh, entry to the EU, and then you starve it of resources. Yeah. Um, how, how does that play out in Portugal? Well, that's um, it is a fact that some of these reforms came in response to uh, pressure from from. Uh, uh, international review mechanism. So, if there was a recommendation uh, saying that we need we needed to improve our uh, uh, monitoring and enforcement of uh, of party financing laws, then you would increment that by by adding up new new competences. Or if you know we had to do something on prevention, you would respond by creating a corruption prevention bureau. I remember at the time there was a discussion to recover the model of the I authority against corruption, but that was dismissed by the government of the day, which was at the time led by uh, Prime Minister Socrates, which has just been implicated in various investigations on corruption and related offenses. In fact, he was not indicted on corruption. Uh, partly because some of the crimes uh, of corruption uh, had reached the statute of limitation, uh, but was indicted on, on other offences. Um, and, and, and during his mandate, uh, during his government, uh, he, uh, he refused the idea of creating a, an eye authority against corruption uh, in in similar to the one we had before. So uh, the option was to create something that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't shake the wave, wouldn't make waves. Uh, and that's why they opted for, for a, a corruption prevention bureau with very limited capacity. Luis, there's so much I want to ask you about Portugal, but I also want to move on. I, I can't resist just lobbing in a couple of questions. The first is, you know, you mentioned 1974 as when uh, there was the transmission from the military regime to um, uh, a new new type of society that Portugal was trying to create. And in that founding document, uh, a mention specifically of tackling fraud and corruption, that strikes me as a very early date for um, uh, a document to be um, using that term corruption. You know, we might be familiar with that in states that are uh, more modern in terms of their um, documentation. But does that seem to you quite early to be in there? No, because, I mean, the regime felt it, it was rotting from inside. Uh, of course, the colonial wars, uh, conflict, the, the man manifestations from, from the students, the, the, the economy, uh, also because uh, uh, we had the, the oil shocks in the 70s, and that had repercussions in the economy as well. I mean, the, the conditions were met to, 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 for, for the transition to take place, but uh, he, he, the military played a very important role. As you know, it was a coup followed by a, a revolutionary process. And um, the military were uh, very conscious that the regime was rotting from inside. I mean, corruption was at a very senior level. 
uh, in the last stages of, of the regime. I mean, similar to what you, we found in Tunisia and, and, and many other places. So um, I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, that the military had inserted these as a priority um, as part, also as part of the military ethics, you know, that, uh, so, uh, no, I think it, it was the context, uh, the, the, the regime had reached a, a level of promiscuity between uh, uh, economic elites and, and regime elites that, that really was, was um, blocking development, was uh, also blocking the possibility of of transition, and that's why uh, they wanted uh, basic to turn the page. They they wanted to to to, to clean up the the um, the administration from these uh, these bad habits and uh, and bad practices. Well, the 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 program doesn't say how. Uh, it only says it's a priority. But obviously, the how uh, it was the parties that were meant to 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 discuss how to do it and which measures were more suitable. Between that document and the first uh, measures addressing corruption, we had a gap of a few years. Uh, the, 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 the political elite only reacted later uh, after the austerity, the IMF austerity programs. So in a way, it reacted to external pressure. And that pattern remained until today. If Portugal has external pressure, it moves in the right direction. <laughs> so uh, th that's for sure the case with, with um, anti-corruption measures. And that, you know, that question of external pressure, which um, uh, brings me on to um, the Angola circumstances that I referenced earlier. The UK is feeling quite a lot of external pressure at the moment over Russian money in the UK. And um, in some of the scandals that have broken around um, uh, kleptocracy in Angola, then uh, Portugal has been um, uh, playing to some extent a similar role that London had played for uh, Russia. Um, is this a big issue or a relatively minor one, do you think, the role of Portugal in, uh, in, in we might call uh, money laundering? It's a big issue and there are... Uh, poss plenty possibilities of doing that money laundering in uh, through uh, some of them even uh, legitimate because uh, we have adopted um, the, the golden visa scheme uh, which enables some of that money to to enter the economy either as um, investment or um, just by buying uh, real estate of a certain value. And, and that offers the possibility of the investor to, to move around in Europe and, and uh, also use other golden visa schemes in other countries to, to put the money back into the economy and, and, and to launder the, the, the proceedings of crime. Yes, at this, a few, we had a few uh, court cases. There are still many things that are not sufficiently explained in the relationship between Portuguese political elites and, and Angolan elites, Portuguese business elites and Angolan political elites. I mean, the, 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 um, the promiscuity between these uh, actors, it's, it's very high. 
Angolan money has entered uh, the, the banking system in Portugal also. So uh, it's quite, um, it's a strong issue uh, of which we, we, we still know uh, very little. I mean, it's still in the process of, of uh, investigating, judging, and, and you know how these things take take. I mean, these are processes that are very complex, yes, but if you get the good lawyers, you also know how to fiddle with the, the um, you know, to, 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 to make this a more dilatory strategy to, uh, so that the process um, uh, expand over time and then eventually, uh, uh, due to statutes of limitation, uh, people will... will uh, escape from from uh, from justice but i mean things uh, uh, are now probably a bit quieter uh, in 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 terms of uh, um, angolan money in the banking sector because after the, the subprime crisis also there's a lot of uh, pressure a lot of investment also in money laundering uh, monitoring mechanisms I think things have improved slightly in the, in a positive direction, but uh, but 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 still there's there's a lot we we don't know. And and one thing uh, is what we read on the papers, and the other thing is to have data uh, about this. And and I don't see any visible data, and it's hard to 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 judge whether we are being successful or not in this in this battle of uh, money laundering. As also a, a, another problem is that we have uh, Madeira, which in a way is a fiscal paradise. Uh, well, it um, has a special fiscal statute, but uh, in practice, uh, there's a lot of shell companies there. And uh, that's also another possibility of, of, of laundering uh, dirty money. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, I think the relation between... Uh, uh, countries like Portugal, which had uh, this uh, colonial past and a special relationship with the uh, <clears throat> political and economic elites in those countries, it's quite hard to um, not to be uh, touched by 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 uh, um, uh, corruption related to to these uh, uh, business practices, and it's not just the issue of laundering money in Portugal. It's also uh, Portuguese investments in those countries and how uh, some of these contracts are, are won. And uh, um, yeah, there's very little said about uh, facilitation payments or bribes being paid to, to get contracts in those countries. And then uh, I think it's quite... Um, um, quite surprising that you know there's there's little talk about the risk or the possibility of that happening. Right. Well, I want to um, move on a bit from uh, the international to the uh, the other end of the scale, the local. After that whirlwind tour of uh, Portugal, uh, Luis, we um, I want to look at your work on uh, local government, um, local government uh, corruption and integrity. You're well known for your work on anti-corruption agencies, and we'll come to that um, towards the end of this discussion. Uh, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your um, excursion into uh, local government. What took you there and what did you find? Actually, both are related. <laughs> both are related because my interest on corruption started 
with local government corruption. Uh, and there were clearly there were um, risks and uh, opportunity structures for, for corruption at the local level. It had to do with the way uh, local government was uh, organized. It had to do with, uh, with the, uh, the, the weak checks and balances, the fact that uh, mayor stayed in office for many years. Um, we finally introduced um, term limits uh, for, uh, for mayors, but that, that, and then that's the only um, elective office that has, uh, well, apart from uh, presidential office that has term limits. Uh, and and the, 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 the law on term limits um, forced uh, some alternation in, in, in some cases, it forced the party alternation in cabinet, which uh, which is a more structural thing. Uh, in other cases, to just replace the player. You know, the mayor was uh, substituted by the the, the, the second uh, uh, member in the list. But yes, the the local government. I mean, the as the fact that you have a civil society that is quite tolerant towards certain practices as long as the, the outcomes are uh, beneficial, that creates an ethical environment of uh, limited political accountability. Uh, opposition parties tend to be weak. Citizens, voters, as I said, they make trade-offs. Uh, you might uh, close your eyes to certain uh, practices because uh, you, are, you are either rewarded uh, directly rewarded, or uh, the community benefits uh, from this. So, you know, they they become a bit tolerant towards um, uh, pulling strings and uh, uh, special treatment of certain uh, uh, of certain um, business players at the local level. Controls from the state are also. Uh, limited because you have 308 municipalities plus the autonomous regions of Azores and Madeira. Uh, it's a lot of stuff to, to check. Um, so you, you, you have a limited capacity, but uh, still um, the national, uh, the court of accounts has, has done uh, a good job uh, in many of the audits and they have identified also, uh, certain integrity risks, and you have this this close connection between uh, uh, the municipality and and uh, and local businessmen. Uh, in in some of these small towns, the municipality is not just the major employer. So you make uh, you 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 have this sort of clientelistic type of uh, of government. But um, they are also the, the largest market, the largest public procurement market. So uh, if you have a business in, in one of these small towns, in a way you are dependent on the municipality. Uh, and so that, uh, that leads, uh, you know, you have all the ingredients that, that uh, Robert Glidgard was putting in that uh, small formula. You have monopoly of power because you have a strong executive strong presidential powers. Um, the mayor stays in office for many years. 
um, not any longer due to the term limit law, but for 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 several decades, that when there were people elected since the since 1976, and they were still in office a few years ago. So you have monopoly, you have uh, a lot of discretion because the, the checks and balances are weak. The administration doesn't really create a lot of constraints to, to the executive. And you have a very weak citizenship. So, I mean, all the ingredients are there. And lack of transparency as well. With it... Uh, um, uh, municipal Transparency Index, uh, which was a joint collaboration between um, the Portuguese chapter of Transparency International and and four universities, and we 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 measure the degree of transparency by the amount of information that was made available in the official websites of of municipalities. The, the indicators were chosen by a panel of experts on local government. And the, the weights of those indicators were also attributed by, by this panel. At the end of the day, we apply this to the 308 municipalities, and there was clear indication that the two most problematic areas in the daily management of local governments was, was uh, urban, and, um, urban planning and, and land management. And the other was public procurement. So these were the, the areas where we, we had, uh, where, where municipalities published less information. Um, and, and we know from another project we did for the uh, National Prosecutor's Office, looking at uh, court cases on corruption and related offenses we look at 828 cases, if I'm not in error, from 2004 up to 2008. And uh, the, 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 the large majority of cases had to do with local government and local public administration. Uh, and many of those had to do with public procurement and also urban planning. Any uh, a small decision in a municipality about Transforming the status of a property from uh, a rural rural property to a, a property where you can build uh, apartments, it, it really adds uh, enormously the value of, of, of these properties. So it, it, it's, it's a minor decision with a lot of economic value. If this is in the hands of, of a person or a limited number of people, uh, if you have this mono monopoly of decision, if you have also uh, a certain degree of discretion in uh, how to interpret the, 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 the rules, the legal framework, and if you, if you have lack of transparency and not sufficient pressure from uh, voters, you have all the ingredients for things to go wrong. So that's why uh, I moved to local government but uh, I'm still uh, working on integrity and transparency and, 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 um, and quality of democracy, basically. And you make a great case, I think, for why it's important to uh, deal with things at local level and not simply um, look at either the international scene or the, uh, or the national scene. Um, in the end, what affects uh, most people's lives day to day happens in their communities. Yeah, 
And let me just, and it's also manageable from in terms of corruption control. This is a small country. It's a very centralized country. We don't have a second tier level of government, except uh, the case of uh, the islands, uh, Azores and Madeira. They have a second tier of government. But in the continent, we just have municipalities and central government. And this is a very centralized country. I mean, the fiscal autonomy of municipalities is quite limited. So for, a, 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 um, I mentioned to you earlier, this Corruption Prevention Bureau that was created, it's located in Lisbon. It doesn't have the capacity to act in the whole territory. That body had a budget of 120,000 euros, a couple of people. If they were to work the, uh, to, to map the integrity risks, in the municipality of Lisbon, that would be a full-time job for them. That's how relevant, uh, I mean, the work of these bodies at the local government. In this case, uh, the municipality of Lisbon, it's huge. Uh, also concentrates a lot of the uh, investment, including foreign investment. So uh, it, it, for a body of, of that size, uh, a municipality uh, like Lisbon would be a full-time job in terms of corruption prevention. Uh, Luis, again, that begs so many additional questions I'd like to probe, but um, you, one point you mentioned there I will pick up on, which is that you did that study um, between four universities and Transparency International, your creation of that um, index. You, um, I think, founded TI Portugal and were its chair um, Transparency International, the, the national chapter in Portugal. That's not a natural thing for an academic to do. Um, what, uh, what took you into doing that? And, um, and how did your, your dalliance with civil society um, meet your expectations or not meet your expectations? Well, um, I think that there was um, several factors that, that led me to, to help because that was my, uh, initially was just to help local uh, uh, players to, to put in place uh, uh, representation of Transparency International. When I got back to Portugal in 2002, uh, there were um, a few people voicing their concerns about, about uh, the problem of corruption in Portugal. There, were, there was no NGO dedicated to, to this subject. And I, I, I was in touch with TI and, and, and some of his chapters um, uh, during my, my PhD. And I was approached by, by, by some, of these, um, some of these people about the possibility of setting up a chapter in Portugal, uh, a TI chapter in Portugal. I think we were... We're amongst uh, one of the last uh, Western European countries to have uh, a TI chapter. So we came quite late. The, the chapter was founded in 2010. And it was, it was created uh, at the institute where I, where I work now. Uh, we started by uh, bringing these different contributions uh, together, meeting, discussing about the possibilities of moving one step forward towards the institutionalization of a chapter. 
and and um, after we we had the uh, the necessary conditions to 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 move towards uh, um, the creation of a chapter, we we um, we took that step, and and TI was very supported supportive from day one. I mean, why did I take the decision to uh, to be part of this? I, I, I thought we needed we needed a critical we needed an NGO that that could bring all these different contributions together because you know the fight against corruption is not made by single individuals. You need to have some something that a platform that uh, has the capacity to put pressure to 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 carry out work to to raise attention to to the problem, and you can't do this on a, on a single basis. It's just you know it gets lost uh, in in the midst of uh, uh, so many other relevant issues. Um, so we um, that I think that was the the key reason why I, I helped them to to set up. Um, and uh, I, can I ask you about my yeah. mindset here? Do, is it difficult to move from in the morning? sitting in the university doing some research with your academic mindset and in the afternoon uh, becoming a campaigner at Transparency International? Yeah, it's a different mindset, but um, probably because the IA chapter was created at, uh, at the Institute and we had several academics involved in the early project, it, it was, I think it was more of a think tank than uh, a grassroots organization. So we research was always present uh, since the beginning uh, in fact we we got the funding from projects uh, from participating in projects that were coordinated by uh, by uh, TIS by the secretariat and uh, so from 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 the early beginning of, of this chapter uh, research was very uh, present and we knew that we had to communicate, we had to disseminate the, the research findings to the wider public. Uh, so we had to convene a message that to, to different publics. We also had to organize conferences with stakeholders so that some of those findings had, could find its way to, to policy making. We published policy briefs, um, opinion articles in the press, um, there was a lot of things done in terms of public communication of research that was being carried out at the research institute, but had had, had this strong component of uh, outreach. I want to turn now to uh, the subject for which you're best known, and um, we've got just a very few minutes to cover this now, which is anti-corruption agencies, which you worked on extensively earlier in your career and published on. Um, and pretty much 15 years ago, I think, you um, said they were caught in this um, uh, trap between um, empowerment and irrelevance. Um, and you've sketched out uh, the fate of the Portuguese um, anti-corruption agency set up with a um, some aspirations in the 1980s and closed down in the 1990s. There has been this story, particularly from um, uh, academics who have studied anti-corruption agencies, that they've more or less been a failure. And your work was never really in that category. You were you were more evaluating what makes them, uh, what are the conditions for success? 
And now, 15 years later, I wonder if you can give us your reflections. Um, do you think they are a useful instrument? And um, uh, do you think your sense of conditions for success uh, would be altered if you were writing now? Yes, that's a good question. Um, to begin with, I, I never saw anti-corruption agencies as, um, as a silver bullet. And often they're so almost like, you know, you, you adopt this and everything <laughs> Uh, will will improve uh, in terms of the fight against corruption. No, I I, I thought they were uh, specialized bodies that could um, contribute to a more uh, innovative and knowledge based. Well, not just prevent preventive work, but in some cases for those that also had inquiry competent uh, inquiry powers, uh, but also uh, at the investigative level. But I, I was always skeptical when um, uh, people were thinking about setting up these bodies in uh, in context of uh, poor human rights records or uh, uh, poor rule of law, poor freedom of information and, and freedom of the press. You know, uh, this um, if these conditions are not there, uh, you may you may be asking for trouble. So you might create a, a very, very powerful body that, that will be uh, instrumentalized by, by, by government and, you know, it will be the uh, witch hunt <laughs> season. So I, I was always very against that. In fact, I remember uh, writing a report. Uh, the memory is, uh, is not good, uh, but I think it was in Montenegro. And I was um, not in favor of... of um, the creation of such a body because uh, I, I saw uh, a lot of uh, factors that, that could uh, lead uh, such, such an entity to be, um, to be used for the wrong purposes. But I always saw, I saw these bodies, as I said, as, as uh, specialized bodies. So in a way, uh, a system upgrade. A mechanism that 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 could boost specialization where where conventional uh, bodies are not capable or or prepared to offer. So I think that that's uh, that's how I saw them, and I still believe that uh, ACAs, if they are considered in, in these terms, I think they they can still uh, bring added value to to an integrity system. Uh, in fact, I mean, the, uh, the United Nations Convention uh, puts emphasis on this, uh, talks about knowledge production, uh, dissemination, talks about specialization. And these are things that uh, ACAS can, can do and uh, can uh, improve the integrity system by, by, by bringing this additional specialization on, on, on corruption. Not all of them have to have investigative capacity. Uh, you can do a great job just uh, acting on prevention. I, I was men we were discussing earlier on the integrity risks at the local government. If this Corruption Prevention Bureau in Portugal had just focused on local government, it would probably uh, have done a better job than uh, trying to do everything at the same time. Uh, public administration, local administration, uh, politics, everything, really. And at the end of the day, nothing, uh, because it was so shallow and so uh, uh, very little results. So um, 
uh, it, it was really a, a, a waste. But that, that's something that we often uh, see happening with these bodies, that um, one way of killing them uh, slowly <laughs> is, is by adding up new uh, functions, uh, not, if, not sufficient resources, and um, you know it just becomes uh, completely obsolete. They 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 lose focus. They're shooting everywhere. They they try to do a lot of things at the same time, for which uh, in 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 some cases they don't have neither the capacity nor the training. And that's that's also a problem because often the discourse is we need an anti-corruption agency because our conventional bodies in the justice system are corrupt. We have a lot of corruption in the magistracy, we have corruption in the public prosecutor's office, in the investigative body, so we need to create this new body. But my question is very simple. Where do you get the people from? You know, they, they, you have to recruit the same people from the other bodies. So you're just transferring the problem into the new entity. I mean, there was only one case, uh, the Hong Kong ICAC, where they actually recruited people from outside. Uh, but that's very, that's very exceptional case. And, and, and language, obviously, and the fact that the working language was uh, English uh, facilitated. But uh, I mean, for the rest of the bodies, if you have lack of capacity, uh, lack of specialization in the conventional bodies, how are you going to have it in the new body if you if you don't provide for this training, if you don't provide for this specialization. Luis, you're sounding a bit pessimistic there about anti-corruption agencies. And yet in the last few years, France and Italy have set them up and um, Australia is just on the verge of doing that. Do you think they're wrong? No, no, on the contrary, because they're actually doing what I uh, just suggested. They're doing as an upgrade to to, I mean, the rest is still functioning obviously we could say with some problems but they're looking at these entities as a way of coordinating uh, I mean to, to play a leading role in, in implementing uh, national strategies or uh, action plans and to, to, to coordinate different efforts to gather information often we discuss I was mentioned to you that we had this successful legislative reforms on party financing and incompatibility laws and all that without knowing what went wrong with the previous reform. So we're not collecting data, we're not evaluating, and these bodies can do this. Uh, and, 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 and they can propose changes to the law saying evidence-based changes to the law, not, not just because you feel the law has to be changed <laughs> because it suits you. Uh, uh, so. I think they still have a role to play, even in, in investigative terms as a kind of pre-investigation inquiry. For certain types of issues, for instance, for conflicts of interest in, 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 in very specific sectors of the public administration related, for instance, for public, public procurement committees, if they just focus on uh, certain... Uh, 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 certain aspects, uh, I think they can deliver. Um, if they try to do everything uh, uh, in one go, uh, they get overstretched, and and and, and frankly, is is uh, it's a recipe for failure. 
but I mean the oversight and enforcement of uh, ethics regulations, conflict of interest laws, incompatibilities, asset declarations. I think this stuff they can deliver. Uh, they can deliver, uh, and 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 I mean you have an example in the UK with the National Elections Commission and the uh, the, the data they collect from from funding. It's it's quite uh, it's quite unusual. I mean, you don't get this uh, that amount of data. It's useful not not just for them, uh, but also for academics. Uh, if you want to explain, if you want to map patterns, trends, if you want to explain variation of sources of funding or amounts of funding across parties, you need that data. So one of the most important functions these bodies can do is to collect data, high quality data on uh, uh, integrity risks, on um, oversight and enforcement of uh, ethics regulations uh, so that we can fine tune the system because the, the system needs to be fine tuned all the time. But we do so with, with evidence-based recommendations and not just suppositions. And, and that's, that's why I think the case of Italy, France, uh, especially um, Australia, because frankly, I think the New South Wales ICIC had done a great job in the past. We can discuss uh, also things that didn't go uh, in the way we wanted, but, but I think overall, uh, the New South Wales ICAC uh, did a good job. And, and, uh, and it's not the only one, actually, in Australia at the state level. So they have a few examples of uh, successful uh, specialized bodies uh, they can look at. Luis, thank you. That that gives us um, at least a positive note on which to draw to a conclusion, I think. Um, there are some lessons undoubtedly to learn from uh, the past, but I think your, um, your feeling of what positive role an anti-corruption agency can play in the present um, is very much still governed by your writing of those 15 years ago, that if the conditions are right, then you can have something that won't be a silver yes. bullet, but will be an improvement. And uh, that at least is something um, that uh, that helps along the journey. Luis, I'm afraid I don't have time to ask you the uh, the final question that I was really looking forward to, which is um, uh, why do voters not throw out rascals? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the title of your 2013 um, uh, piece and uh, so pertinent in the years since 2013 when uh, there have been so many rascals that the voters have voted in, not even not voted true, out. True, um, true. But unfortunately, time has uh, gone on. That has been a, an incredibly rich discussion, uh, Luis, covering uh, Portugal, local government, uh, TI, academia, and uh, anti-corruption agencies. Uh, so thank you very much for taking the time thank to you, be with us.